This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Alexandra Fuller. My mother was a terrible mother, but a very inspiring person in some ways. And my dad was a beautiful parent, but clueless. He had been left so cold. We'll hear more from Alexandra Fuller in a few minutes. I want to invite you to be part of the First Draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. For your contribution of $6 or more a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. It takes a lot of energy and love to put this show together every week, not to mention equipment, time, and electricity. Your donation helps keep this show going. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. Stay tuned at the end of the show, and I'll share some of the extras you will receive this month for donating. If First Draft is a part of your life, please contribute to keep the dialogue going. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, Reminder, Membership Matters. I can't tell you how giddy I get when a new donor joins the community. It reignites my resolve to keep reading a book a week and pursuing meaningful conversations with the authors. So thank you so much. And now I have a website. You can find more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. There's a link there to donate, an opportunity to sign up for a newsletter, and the entire archive of more than 200 First Draft shows. So come visit and listen. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Alexandra Fuller, author of seven nonfiction books, including Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight, An African Childhood, Cocktail Hour Under the Tree of Forgetfulness, and Leaving Before the Rains Come. Most of her books focus on her childhood growing up in Africa and offer meditations on her early life and family, as well as what it means to be a white settler in black Africa. Fuller was born in England, but moved with her family to a farm in Rhodesia when she was a toddler. She grew up in a war-torn country near the border of Mozambique. She was educated in Zimbabwe and later moved to America and now lives in Wyoming. Her recent memoir, Travel Light, Move Fast, focuses on her father's life and death. He lived out the end of his days as a banana farmer in Zambia. In the book, Fuller switches between stories of her childhood and the death of her father. As Fuller examines her parents' lives and her own reactions to their wild adventures, where Fuller and her sister appeared along for the wild ride, she dives into the topics of grief and loss, racism and denial. Fuller's parents lost three children in their early years of marriage, and Alexandra is now estranged from the sister she grew up with. While writing the memoir, Fuller suffered the devastating loss of her middle child, a son, and weaves the grief of his death into the narrative. We began by discussing the age of 50 and the pressure we put on our choices and how they feel more salient and important now. Fuller shares one choice she's made that is different from her earlier life. I am not 
you know, I'm not flying anymore, really. And it's been interesting to watch people's response to that. But it just seems like such an obvious older person thing to do. It's like, you know, I've flown for 50 years or have many long it's been 30. I can check out of this scene. Yeah, it is a funny. And I keep thinking about my parents at this age and where they were, where they were at 50. Really different. Planet was different when they were 50. And the energy they had to keep my father, God, I don't know how he did it. Keep farming. Keep farming. I, 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 brand new, fresh, fresh farms over and over. I don't know how he did it. You know, some of what this speaks of, really, when you talk about being 50 and these changes in your lives, is mortality. And I feel like after reading yeah. the book, so much of this, you know, I questioned, is, is this spurred by death? Is this spurred by life? sort of your inspiration, but I'm, I'm curious, just some of your thoughts about going through some really tragic death while writing mm. this book. I think that it put grief in perspective for me as a white settler who has moved into, I'm very aware of the fact that I moved from one white settler situation in Zimbabwe slash Zambia, and I saw so many grades of that, but I saw white settlerdom kind of take over to white middle class settlerdom in the States, which is so much wealthier. And this was so unattainable back when I was a kid. So I think that my my worldview is in too. You know, my worldview until I was twenty was so different. My expectations were so different. And one of the ways my father sort of put it rather brilliantly you know, he was such a conservative. He had to be. He, we've gone through rations and, and both rations from, from being in the war and then also from socialism where petrol was rationed. That was a big one. Fuel is so expensive and life is cheap. And then I moved to the States and fuel was cheap and life was expensive. If you're white, middle class, American, white settler, if you're indigenous or black, it's the same as Zimbabwe was under Rhodesian regime. It didn't matter. You were invisible. White noise was the dominant narrative. All those things feel similar. So writing about death in this way really made me think about how much more common it is for indigenous communities, communities of color, migrant communities to experience the kind of death I have had. It's just a lot more common. I, I was thinking that even as I was running to his body, that the death of a father, that is, that's supposed to, I think, launch us into adulthood. But the death of a child launches you into elderhood. So I think for me, writing about the death of a father and the death of a child in the same book is about pers the perspective of the global majority that I just don't think we're, we've been forced to reckon with in you know, since the 70s and 80s, since antibiotics and the Green Revolution and all these things that I think have made humans and travel, things that have made us so much more comfortable materially day to day, have made us uncomfortable with these more difficult issues of infinity and, and out-of-step mortality and a robust spirituality, a robust grounded spirituality that helps us. And I'm talking here as a white settler Episcopalian just finding that the you know resources for processing this are so limited and seem sort of amputated compared to say indigenous community where I was able to understand that my father had become an ancestor and I was able to understand my son had become ancestor and that 
it's a different responsibility grieving that than just grieving what you might believe someone's material end to be the most important. So, I mean, all of that was playing into it. My, just my dual sense of being that although I'm white and came from a very oppressive culture, white supremacist, and very much involved, not incidentally enjoying the privilege in the rural and the you know urban areas, but being in it on the rural areas. Uh, and so that split, I think being raised with rural Southern Africans and my father who soaked up so much of that culture um, was what I really wanted to put on the page. Like, you know, there is a way to cope with this because people's response when my son died was, you know, my dad died, they, people were sorry, but no one knew him here. Um, you know, sorry, your dad died. You're supposed to just get on with it. When my son died, people's response was, oh, you'll never get over this. But in Zimbabwe, my friend from school wrote to me and said, you know, we grieve with you. Not you'll never get over this. I don't know how you're going to cope, but we grieve with you. And the first one is the hardest. I was wondering, too, what kind of coping mechanisms you grew up with because your mother... <sighs> suffered the same loss she lost three of five children and the only book I've read of yours is this one and you that wasn't the subject of it but I got the sense from everything else you wrote about the parents it was just like keep going keep going not much time so you you didn't like in your very young being learn how to cope with loss like that right yeah my mother was a terrible mother but very inspiring person in some ways and my dad was a beautiful parent, but clueless. He had been left so cold uh, emotionally uh, as as a child himself. So you have had, I mean, I think I had two teenage parents, really, who were frozen in the moment of their first trauma, which was when my brother died. And he died nine months and 20 days before I was born. So they their coping mechanism wasn't instinctive and it backfired I think just having a child so soon after the loss of one and then enduring two more losses you know to the point that you I think they were I mean they're a British stock anyway so that didn't help um but I think one of the ways that they coped with that was to try to not attach too much to the children that were there I mean we definitely I would say were emotionally abandoned after each death, which I now fully, fully understand. I mean, when a child dies, you become so absorbed with that child, it's very, very hard to even see that you have other children. I mean, that is just such an unspoken part of this grief. But what I saw my dad especially do was take off to, you know, what we call the bush, the wilderness. And part of my concurrent grief has been the knowledge and the lived experience of knowing we've lost half the species you know, the one on the planet. Um, and my father was doing his grief, that there is something about being in the lively, anonymous, indifferent power of the wilderness that is just the only medicine that can reach this kind of existential loneliness of the loss of a child. And my parents both showed that they got out of doors and they, my father walked his grief out I now know this is so unspoken. So I would say that that would be the coping mechanism that I learned um, from my users to get outdoors. And so I have a sheep wagon and I dragged it up into the mountains, stayed in the mountains for three months for the most part and wrote this book and grieved and meditated. And 
walked in the wild and it was surreal and painful, but the existential loneliness beyond which I, I just, I just can't imagine grieving a child in prison or in a prison war camp or at a, at a migrant camp, how, you know, or in the absence of nature, I think in a way that one of the greatest crimes is that we preserve, quote unquote, reserve nature, um, the very white space. Um, which is a little bit being written about, but it really occurred to me that, oh my gosh, this is such a privilege to have this wilderness. And although we say it's everyone's land, it's it's a lie. It's not. This land isn't safe for people to cross in the vast majority of the national parks. The wilderness that we have available are in really white and white secured areas. And I think it's easy to think of it non-racially, but that isn't, I mean, that isn't the case. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit just about your parents, who they were. Um, you encapsulated uh-huh. so much of it in your book, but for people who might not have read it yet. I mean, my mother grew up in Kenya during the Mau Mau period, during the sort of liberation struggle from, from British colonialism. Like most people going through revolutionary change, which the Mau Mau was, they, I mean, either people sort of flee the country, which you know I was aware of, or they stay kind of stubbornly, and she was she was among those who could stay stubbornly. I think she would have found it impossible to live anywhere else. My father was British, and he came out to Kenya to see a giraffe. I mean, it was those sort of wheeling entitlement that you didn't think anything of it, that you could just hop on a ship or an aeroplane and kind of make yourself at home in a land that was not yours. But that was certainly the ethos that the children grew up with. I mean, they met each other in November, were married by July. And as my grandmother said, <laughs> you know, I don't know what the big hurry was. But they left the honeymoon on two wheels. And you, I don't think your father slowed down for the corners. And that, and I think he was sort of fleeing the soggy grayness of post-war Britain. So my parents moved to Rhodesia when it was a pariah state, when it had made a unilateral declaration of independence um, from Britain that it was going to run itself as a white minority government without the voices or participation of, I mean, active political participation of six million indigenous citizens. But they moved to the front line of the civil war. They didn't just sort of move to Rhodesia and be done with it, which was at war as it was. They moved to the Mozambique border. We were right up against one of the largest minefields in the world was on the edge of our farm. And I write about war incessantly. It's all I think about. I think it does damage. I think the two ways that you can damage a soul, possibly beyond repair, are sexual violence and war. And the two often go together because once you've sort of got young men running around with guns and the, you know, thou, you've already eliminated thou shalt not kill, every other commandment feels a bit malleable, I think. As you're describing all this, it sounds like it would be so serious in your household, but your parents seemed like they were the type of people who were the life of the party. They were yeah. they were partying, they were drinking. Your dad had a lot of yeah. philosophy. There always has to be something exciting going on. You know, he had yeah. all these sayings like, it, it's going to be okay in the end, and if it's not okay, it's not the end. He he really seemed like a very jovial sort, and that, that doesn't mean everything else, of course, isn't true about him, but they, mm-hmm. they really seemed like they mm-hmm. just grabbed life and you yes. and your sister were just along for this crazy yes. ride. Yes, 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 both and. And that, I think, is the really beautiful, confusing thing about coming to grips with this stuff as an adult, which is that you realize, oh, 
I completely love flawed people. I mean, that doesn't mean I love their my parents' politics at all. I've spent my life in opposition to that. But as humans, I love them. And I wonder if that isn't a kind of instruction going forward, that there was so much that they gave me that were a gift that was life-affirming. And I mean, the, my introduction to literature and music and, and wildlife and horses. What do you think about the concept of home? I was thinking about it a lot during your book because your dad died in Budapest when your parents were on a trip. And, you know, when you were looking into what to do with his body, you went to the English embassy and they said, well, he's not English anymore. And I don't know if he was totally Zimbabwean. What do you think about this concept of home? First, in reference to your parents, but also for you, you left and came to America. I think that there is this way in which home your entitlement to home. I mean, who, declare, who declares you worthy of homeland? You declare yourself. Is that enough? Or, or is it the you know the people who came before you? And and so for me, watching the violence of that displacement. Oh, I mean, it was taken for granted. And 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 being in a civil war, which was over homeland. I mean, I was in the you know the cauldron of this thing. And so as refugees came back when the war ended, and our farm was the first farm they would meet once they managed to cross the minefield and settle their own ancestral land. Um, my mother went crazy and, and went out on horseback with me um, and tried <clears throat> tried to sort of run the village down and the villages down, um, these resettled refugees. So I think that's I think your question remains for me a question. To whom does this belong? And the thing that really struck me was that in Canada now, it's almost part of the course to begin any public conversation with land acknowledgements. Oh, we are standing here, you know, in my case, um, the land of the Shoshone, the Eastern Shoshone and the, and the Bannock tribes here in Teton County, Wyoming. And that that would be the way that you start every conversation. And I think that that would have, it would have changed Everything had white settlers assimilated with what more with what they found in situ, both you know in Rhodesia, but also here in the states. And that, in a in a way, home, as we know it collectively, I think belongs to the people who understand that the home needs to be sustained. You can't. The home is collective. You can't just chop off a piece of it and declare it yours. It doesn't work that way. I don't know that I get entitled to a home in this lifetime. One of the things you wrote, and I think you were talking about grieving, is you said that there's a purgatory of doubt between suffering and grace. I was wondering, can you talk about that line? And and are you at the grace part yet? (laughs) No, (laughs) Um, because I think the grace comes and goes. It's that you know, if you're Episcopalian, as I am, there's this line that you, you say in, in um, liturgy that's, that, you know, about the peace of God that passes all understanding. And I, I, I'm not sure I understood that. I think I tried to achieve that through meditation and, and sort of that kind of self-healthy stuff. But for me, that grace is the peace of God or whatever you want to call it. That word has been so weaponized and misused. Um, that passes all understanding and that comes after the work of grief, which is a baffling, brutal pain. And my experience of it, as they, as they tell you, is the grief never ends. It just shifts. And 
So in my experience, that that doubt, that purgatory of doubt, is really just suffers. The simplest way I can understand it is that it's ego trying to reassert itself over God or over what is or over you know, what is, what is. You can't change what is. I can't bring back my son. I can't have the support of my father. I can't have that life that I had believed was so solid. And I think the grace are these moments of deep acceptance. You know, but I, it requires the work of grief. And I don't know that we're doing enough of that in this culture. I just don't think we give ourselves the time to grieve. I mean, how do you do this and go back to a nine to five job, let alone two jobs, or three, you know, so many people are doing, you know, whereas all I did was grieve and write and grieve and write and grieve and write and grieve and write. You know, I think culturally you look around and go, well, the first two stages of grief is described by Kubler-Ross and denial and anger, and we seem to be in a lot of that as a culture. Yeah, it seems like, you know, back to the very beginning when you were talking about people telling you, you'll never get over this. Yeah. Where does these moments of grace fit in? I I, I mean, so my experience of grief is, is this profound existential loneliness and the, you know, the instructions I unwittingly gave myself. So I had told each of my three children I would love them into infinity without ever dreaming that one of them would take me up on the challenge. But I go to find my son. I mean, of course I do. And in that, I find everything because he is in the infinite. And so, you know, for that, I'm really grateful that I have that understanding. But it is not a supported grief. Yeah. When I went back to Zambia, the most, the greatest thing was being around people who have an understanding of supportive grief. And there is a, in, in Nyanja language or, and in indigenous culture and all the indigenous cultures I'm aware of in Southern Africa, so Manika and Goba. In Nyanja, the word is in Zimu. And it's when someone dies, you hear, first of all, an ululation, which is just chilling, just that, you know, blood-curdling cry that somebody has died. So now you know as that relation dies out, other people will begin relating. And in the Mzimu, you throw yourself on the ground, you roll in the dust, you howl, because it's understood that the somebody's last is, it's too hard for you to break the physical, you know, bonds that you have with a loved one on your own. Those, you need help, you need the help of your community the bond that you need to create is a metaphysical bond. And again, you need the help of the community. You need the help of your spiritual leaders. You need the help of your elders in that community. And that, um, you know, that is something that doesn't exist here. I, I certainly went searching for it. And so for me, if I didn't have that understanding of indigenous grieving, my understanding that my you know, loved ones have become ancestors, that there isn't this sort of dreadful medical death that is the end of all things, I, I must certainly have succumbed. <laughs> a kind of a suicidal desperation. I just don't know what else you would do. It would be horrendous. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So I have perhaps rather predictably gone to um, try to find my own indigenous wisdom in this process. Um, And so I turned to John O'Donoghue while I was writing quite frequently he had, he's written a book called Anamkara and a book of Celtic wisdom. He was a philosopher and a thinker um, who recently died, but he was raised as a farmer. 
So I love that, that he's got this very similar, the Irish version of my childhood. So this is from John O'Donoghue's Anamkara. And he talks really about this strange thing that I do, which is that um, work and expression. In other words, I do my life for my living, and I realize how rare that is. He writes, the human deeply desires expression. One of the most beautiful ways the soul is present is through thought. Thoughts are the forms of the soul's inner swiftness. In a certain sense, there is nothing in the world as swift as a thought. It can fly anywhere and be with anyone. Our feelings too can move swiftly. Yet even though they are precious to our own identity, thoughts and feelings still remain largely invisible. In order to feel real, we need to bring that invisible world to expression. Every life needs the possibility of expression. When we perform an action, the invisible within us finds a form and comes to expression. Therefore, our work should be the place where the soul can enjoy becoming visible and present. The rich unknown, reserved and precious within us can emerge into visible form. Our nature longs deeply for the possibility of expression in what we call work. Do you want to say anything else about that? I don't know how much you get this, but, you know, I'm a woman. I write for a living. And I think there's this sense that this is, this is a lady novelist. You just, all you do is sit around. That must be so much fun. A, a, a hobby, you know. And really it's not. It's the deep excavation of the soul. And then what goes on the page is a reflection of my soul's understanding. The clearer and more perfect it is, the more likely it is to be pure soul. But it's soul hitting the page through the prism of a human life, an imperfect, flawed, desiring, grasping, craving, normal human life. I love that. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, I really had to think about this. Good question, by the way. So this was about getting my mother out of Budapest. And it was when I was writing the book, the friend that I was reading the book to said, have you got your mother out of Budapest yet? And it's sort of roughly halfway through the book. And I just couldn't, after dad died, find a way to sum up what it must be like to leave your love of 51 years, the place where he died, you know, and be arrive there thinking you're going on a vacation to the poor man's Paris, which is why they went to Budapest to begin with. And then leave there with one of you, you know, in an urn. So this is as mom and I are leaving the airport with dad in a in a urn that looks like a uh, bomb casing. And my mother had very understandably coped with my father's death by getting exceedingly drunk. So she was in a wheelchair and she couldn't move. She couldn't get herself on the plane. She was still coherent. And I put dark glasses on her and a slash of Christian Dior lipstick and some ghastly perfume my father had bought her at the Duty Free. So this is my, me trying to get my mother on the plane in Budapest. I don't know what they usually do with people in wheelchairs at Verahegi Airport, but we were driven to the plane in an ambulance. Four handsome medics in attendance, like 911 version of the Hungarian Chippendales. Mum, regal as it was possible to be in the hotel's shabby black wheelchair. And from there, she was foisted on board the plane with the trolleys containing ham and cheese. She waved one last time at the city. Goodbye, Budapest, she cried as the ambulance sped back toward the terminal. Goodbye. It was definitely like a movie, but much more surreal. I can't forget the city. I'll never forget the city. 
She smiled sadly at the airline stewards as they strapped her into her seat. The last place we were together, my husband and I. Thank you. Thank you all so much. You've all been so kind. She pinned her nose to the window. Oh, dear. Oh, how sad. Goodbye. Goodbye. I'd been unable to find two seats together. Buying two air tickets from Budapest to anywhere at the last minute had been hard enough. I took my place near the back of the cabin. I put Dad under the seat in front of me. The whole plane reeked of black opium. The other passengers began to filter aboard. Everything so stubbornly routine, as if death had not recently visited. No displacement and despair. The safety talk was given in three languages. The plane took off. I stared out the window. Central, and then Western Europe lay beneath me, greener and hillier and emptier than I had imagined this late into a hot summer. Villages were swept into valleys along veins of glinting water, rivers and reservoirs, tiny mountain lakes, everything seeming ancient and long settled. The blood and sweat and mud of generations soaked into one place. But armies had washed back and forth across these pleasant-looking little settlements, too. And in living memory, these quietly innocent places scouring bloody tides of armies over and over again. The bodies had piled up here, too, everywhere. The bodies were still piling up. Done correctly, years of careful tending, it was still going to take more time to grieve the dead from all these tragedies than the living had left. And yet, those who forget to grieve, forget. Everyone knows the forgetful are doomed to repeat the past. The willfully forgetting to churning up the past like bones in the field. It still happens in Zimbabwe. A farmer tills up the war's bones. There is no escaping this. Do you want to talk a little bit about choosing that? I think that for me, it was putting my father's death in context over and over. So that there was, as my father died in 2015 in the summer of heat wave in Budapest, the, the city was clogged with Syrian and Afghani refugees, but primarily Syrian. And then, you know, flying over Europe, you just can't, I mean, being in Budapest, being in Europe, you can't help but feel the echoes of the Second World War, but all the wars that went before that. I mean, a place like Hungary has been invaded and reinvaded and reinvaded. And so this beginning of my sense that, ah, homelessness is endless, like there's always this washing of violence back and forth. Um, and that we're just a part of that. We're one tiny, puny, sorrowful fragment and really quite an easy grief by comparison um, to these these bloodbaths that have washed over Western Europe before. And that we're doomed to repeat unless we remember, unless we really grieve. I think every individual grieves the Holocaust, grieves the attempted genocide against um indigenous community, grieve the way the West was settled, grieve our wars, grieve our anger and grieve our our brutality, grieve our losses, grieve what our gains have cost. I mean, it's a very important labor to do, a very important duty as a community member to grieve correctly. So that grieve, I think grieving correctly is one of the ways to break cycles of oppression, repression, suppression, liberating. Where do you write? (laughs) Uh, Well, I have three children, so I write where I can keep my eyes on them when they were little. I used to write in in a little crow's nest above 
their kitchen, the kitchen, but that I could sort of look out at, you know, and I was always cooking something. There was always laundry. It was book, baby, book, baby, book, baby, puppy, baby, book, baby, puppy, 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 you know, just, just this kind of chaotic life. And so I've always written surrounded by dogs and children on the floor if I have to, on top of the washing machine, above the kitchen. I wrote this book in a sheep wagon in the mountains grieving. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't think I do, to be honest with you. I think it's living in ways. It's a really good question, and it's one that I should give more thought to. I didn't, I think I stopped realizing it was an option to sort of switch off. I mean, so much of my writing is done in my head on a horse or on foot. I walk a lot. I ride horses. I have a horse, so I uh, ride in the mountains a lot, Um, and it's, seems like I'm getting away, but I realize that I'm not. I'm constantly writing. And so for me, the real answer to that, I've really thought about it. It's a good question. I think it's meditation. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Whoever I'm most in love with at that moment. How have you dealt with rejection? <laughs> it's just information, let's see. You try and you, you put the little bits of ash of yourself, you sweep them up. And you thank God for the ego, the free ego dissolving. And then you take the lessons of why you were rejected. And I trust my editor and my agent implicitly and completely. I wouldn't say that we have a friendly, warm relationship. I don't think that's the relationship I'd want with them. I'm terrified of my editor and I'm quite scared of my agent. And when they reject something, they rejected the book that I was writing right before this, which was the relationship with my sister. Um, and the book is called, it's a great title, Popular Drinking Games for Children 12 and Under. But it was so bitter. It was so resentful. It was so angry. It was so childish. But, and the rejection was swift and definitive. It was so good for me. So right, then you take that rejection. So the, the thing still needed to be written. I still think I needed to clean bitterness and childishness out of the pipes of, of my words, but then, but then I wrote this. And I think this is a much more beautiful, powerful book, and I wasn't expecting it to include the death of my son, I have to say that, when I started it. What is your favorite word? I have thought about that, and I decided that I don't have one, because I think if I had one, it would lose its excitement. I'm excited by words put together in a way that describes something in a new enlightening way so accurately that it makes you laugh out loud the phrase that I've heard lately that I love is mind palace and it describes it was written in a feminist essay it was talking about fleabag and it was talking about the neurosis of sort of white middle class women and that we invite each other into our mind palaces to explore <laughs> our neurosis I found that such a chilling phrase and uh, realized that I'd like to avoid having a mind palace that I invite everyone into. And I think as a memoirist, your mind palace is something you need to take down with a sledgehammer every morning. Make sure you're inviting people in to sort of witness your witness your process and, and hold you through your process. I, I like that phrase right now. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Alexandra Fuller, author of the memoir, Travel Light, Move Fast. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Lou Spinney, who wrote about her son's snowboard accident and the decision to allow him to end his life in England.
You can find the entire archive of interviews on my website at firstdraftwriters.com. You can also follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. That's short for First Draft, a dialogue on writing. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including cuts from the interviews from this month's episode that didn't make it into the final show, and writing tips from my guests. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. One of the extras you will receive from this interview with Alexandra Fuller will be her comments on whether belonging and home are the same thing and some of her favorite words from a Somalian poet. There will be additional cuts and writing tips from other interviews running this month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming up in the next few episodes are interviews with Kimmy Eisel, Nick Flynn, and Amitav Ghosh. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin, your host and producer. Thank you for listening.